0: So I know like, probably all of us here, Rachel and I have a morning ritual, you know, we get up and we have our coffee, check the newspapers. For me, it usually includes looking at Doctor Who message boards. And now we've added solving the Wordle to that routine, which I'm guessing several several of you probably are also doing Wordle. And I saw a few weeks back, Sarah Bessie, uh, she's a, a writer who was actually going to preach here in June. Uh, she was on Twitter and she was joking that it was restoring her faith in humanity that no one is spoiling the Wordle answer on social media every day. And I thought that's really funny because we can't collectively agree to wear masks, but somehow we've agreed to like not spoil the Wordle fun. But we all have, you know, these routines that we work into our lives, and sometimes we can adjust them a little bit, right, to make them work better for us. So for us, that was adding that to the morning. And as I was thinking about that, I thought it might actually be helpful to give some context to our church gathering ritual that we do here every Sunday sharing this. And there's a lot of thought that goes on into the services, and I actually think it can help our gathering just be a little bit more meaningful when we understand why it is that we do what we do. And to know that this ritual that we do it isn't set in stone. And if you've been around a little while, you know, that we often tweak our services a little bit now and then as we take in new information or thoughts from all of you in the community. And it is a little like, you know, when Rachel and I add Wordle, it's like we're happy to add or subtract things if we think that it's helpful, right? Because this is a thing that we're doing together as a community. And especially I think maybe for people who are newer, it might be helpful to know that we started our, when we kind of planned out our service and how we would do church, the overall structure was informed by the Episcopal Sunday service order. And it doesn't follow it precisely, but that's kind of the underlying framework. And we did this partly because Ken grew up Episcopal and he has always had a bit of Episcopal, I think running through his own spirituality, not to mention that he's married to an Episcopal priest. But it was also some advice that we had received from a worship professor um, who we had asked when we started the church i reached out just for some thoughts and this was a professor who's not even episcopal but is a big fan of the way that they order their services and felt like they did it really well and i also thought using that episcopal structure as the underlying it also feels a little more true to the place where we're located in the larger church Right, our, our worship, um, it looks and it feels different than our Episcopal friends for sure, but we have quite a bit of theology that's in common. So, for some of you, you won't care about this little tidbit at all, but for those of you who do, um, the Anglican Episcopal tradition, um, the United Methodists came out of that tradition. And Soulless Jesus, the book that Ken and I wrote together, it's really kind of an expansion of Methodist theology with a little bit of Pentecostal influence. Right, so if that's helpful to you to understand sort of the stream of Christianity of which we're a part, I think that's sort of the scaffolding of where we started when we designed our services and that's, that's why. And when we open each week, we start with welcome and we do that because we value hospitality. And I know that that can feel a little bit rote if you've been part of a community for a long time, right? That you hear me every week being like, hi, I'm Emily, I'm the pastor here at Blue Ocean. And we kind of go through that, but we want people who are new to feel as comfortable as possible in this space, right? I don't ever want someone to feel anxious about whether or not they're going to know, like, are we going to sing? Or what words do I need to say if we're going to pray? And that's why we're in, when we're in person, We try and be super clear about like giving instructions for what's happening especially during communion when we do things like stand up and form a line like we just really want people to feel like they know what's going to be happening and how they can opt out if it's something they don't want to do right and to me that's just part of being a good host we more recently added a gathering statement to our service i'm going to mute for a sec because i need to Sorry about that. I've got a little bit of allergy or something. Um, But that gathering statement we added last fall because I read a book. I think it was last summer. I read it. It was called The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker. I'll put it into the into the chat here in case you're interested. I I have to admit the book is a little bit more intense than I would ever be for gatherings um, because she's a professional event planner but I felt like she had some wisdom that we could incorporate as we were coming together. And I'm going to put the quote that stuck out to me. It was actually pretty early in the book and I thought, Oh, this is helpful. She said, here's the great paradox of gathering. There are so many good reasons for coming together that often we don't know precisely why we are doing so. And you're not alone. If you skip this first step in convening people meaningfully committing to a bold, sharp purpose, When we skip this step, we often let old or faulty assumptions about why we gather dictate the form of our gatherings and we end up gathering in ways that don't serve us or not connecting when we ought to. And that struck me because I thought, you know, all of us come from these different backgrounds, um, especially faith backgrounds, and we have different assumptions about like why we do church and so it felt like maybe a statement would help us to focus and to remember why we do what we do. And so what I did was I asked the staff to just list the reasons on a Google Doc, like, why do you go to church? Because I thought, if we don't know why we go to church or why we're doing it, then we're really in trouble. And we came up with a really long list, and it included a lot of specifics, right? Things like wanting to reinforce values in our kids. And so what I did then was I I distilled all of those specifics into that statement that we now use. And I think it brings us back to the basics of what Christianity is about. about connection. It's about justice. It's about shaping an ethical framework for living that helps us and our kids and our communities thrive. And I think it's helpful for us to remember that as we focus our attention every week. Then we have our our call to worship, right? That's the place where we make space for gratitude. And we know that having a habit of being thankful, it leads to all sorts of good outcomes like improved health, positive emotions. And so incorporating that into a weekly rhythm, I think, is part of spiritual health. And it's also very traditional to begin Christian services with thanksgiving to God, right? Because it puts our focus onto the Creator. There's that very famous Psalm, Psalm 100, it suggests that we enter God's gates with thanksgiving in our hearts, and we enter their courts with praise, right? So it's this posture of gratitude that we're fostering as we're coming together. And then that's followed by the Sarum prayer. And that prayer is centuries old. Um, I don't know if you know, some of you do, but Ken wrote an entire devotional about the Sarum prayer, which is really practical and lovely. It's like a 40 day uh, journey with that prayer. And I think what that does is it helps us locate God in our bodies. You say that again, it helps us locate God in our bodies. I think American Christianity, and we might even venture to say, like American culture in general, is not great at helping us connect with our bodies and our emotions. Right? And we can think of all kinds of different ways that this is true. Like we teach males to detach from certain emotions. We oftentimes teach females, genderqueer people, um, to recognize emotions, but then ignore those or martyr themselves to please others to sort of tamp them down. Um, There are all kinds of ways that minority groups learn to detach from themselves for survival. And so the Sarum prayer is a practice of like locating ourselves in our bodies. And maybe especially as a congregation that has a lot of LGBTQ people who have learned to not do that very well or to ignore it. Right? We are reminding ourselves that our bodies are good. They're God given. They're vessels for the presence of the creator. And this prayer actually, it predates the enlightenment. There's a funny history with it where during the enlightenment, they changed a couple lines, but they've been changed back. Um, The version we use is the old version. And what it does is I think it helps us remember that our hearts often lead our thinking and that that's not a bad thing, right? That we, we pride ourselves on being rational beings right? I think therefore I am the very big enlightenment idea. But studies increasingly show that we're actually a lot less rational than we like to think and that our emotions are actually quite smart. And that our hearts often lead our thinking. And in a culture um, that doesn't like to talk about death or grieving, I think this prayer helps us remember that God is with us in our departing and that we talk about that, right? God's in our transition to whatever is coming. I remember we had a congregant who died a few years back and he had told me that it was helpful for him to say the words, God be at my end and my departing with others in a corporate context as they were getting sick because it felt like it's something I can say here in this space when so many people don't want to talk about that. Right, and then we do the kids minute and we have our scripture reading. Um, We only do that kids minute on Zoom because there's no Sunday school. Usually we'd have Sunday school. And we always want the kids to know that we're thinking of them, that they're an important part of our community. So we try and prioritize that. And then we take the scripture that they read each week from the lectionary. So if you don't know what the lectionary is, don't worry. I didn't know what the lectionary was until well into pastoring because I don't come from a tradition that uses it. But what the lectionary is, it's, it's a it's a book or it's a collection that provides a few scriptures for churches that can be read aloud each week, right? So it's the same scriptures are used in every church on the same Sunday, right? So like, for instance, Hope read us um, a passage from Luke chapter six this week. And so that same portion of the Bible is being read in thousands upon thousands of churches, maybe millions, I don't know, but thousands at least all around the world this morning. Right. And a lot of churches who do this, the sermons are then built around that lectionary reading, not in ours, but many, many of them do that. And I think that using the lectionary, it can help us feel connected to the larger global church body, right, that we have this thread that ties us to what other people are also reading together. And we do it with a few modifications, um, though we always use the easy to read version of the Bible so that our, our young people don't feel overwhelmed by the by the uh, language of it. And whoever's preaching usually chooses the scripture. So I'll just speak for myself here, but I readily change large words even then, if I know that we have like a seven-year-old who's gonna be reading this weekend. I also occasionally will just discard the lectionary completely if the reading doesn't have enough context, right? So I'm always thinking about what would this verse sound like coming out of the mouth of a young child? Right. So if the verse is about like smashing our enemies heads on rocks, I skip it. (laughs) Or I think just some scripture, it just needs context for it to be useful. And especially if there's violence or if the portion has been used historically to um, harm particular groups. Right. I think having a kid read something that's been deeply harmful without any context for the listeners is not helpful our community, right? So we try and be discerning in how that's done. Announcements are announcements, right? They're about life together, hospitality, letting people know how to find resources. Um, So the sermon is the sermon. (laughs) And it feels weird as a pastor to talk about the sermon. And I'm sure I could go on and on about it. Don't worry, I won't. But I think it's helpful to say it's the time that we take together to to consider our shared stories, right, that you pay me and the other staff in at least small part to wrestle with these stories and to look around for different lenses so that we can deepen our our collective wisdom about how to approach them to study Midrash, especially Pastor Caroline, who loves studying Midrash. To think through how our stories can help us respond in practical ways to what's actually happening in the world. Right? And I was thinking, as an example, in the first summer of the pandemic, you know, when the Black Lives Matter protests were happening almost daily, we thought about what stories would be helpful. And so we considered women's stories from the book of Exodus to help us think about racial justice. And then when we were coming on the 2020 election, we spent quite a bit of time in the book of Revelation and thinking through themes of, Christianity and empire. I think with potential war in Ukraine, it might be time to take another look at the various Christian approaches to war. All right. So Ken and I are constantly thinking through what would be helpful to us in any given time, whether that's just remembering some basics of spirituality, because we all need reminders about forgiveness and grace and rest, because to do justice, you have to learn to rest well as well. Um, or whether that's like pushing and developing things that help us expand our understanding of the welcome and inclusion of God, right? We should always be looking to expand that. I also personally feel very strongly that the church needs to use its prophetic voice to denounce things like white supremacy and authoritarianism, homophobia, and things like that from the pulpit. I think so much of the white American church has become highly ineffectual, for a couple of well for many reasons but one it wants to make everybody especially big donors happy and it wants political power right and if we get to a place where we can't say things like black lives matter from the pulpit the larger church has a problem right so the the prophetic voice for justice makes up the majority of the hebrew scriptures i think it's at the heart of the gospel and it's important for us to be able to do that as a collective and i think we've seen the effects of the church not being able to do that over the last several years in our country. So, because I could talk about sermons more, it's a little navel-gazy, so we'll just go on from there. The meditation is meant to help us develop a practice of silence and contemplation. I think it, it reinforces the idea that God is alive. The spirit has been unleashed into the world. We can have connection with that spirit who's our guide, our comfort, our empowerment, our breath. And I think meditation is calming, right? It reduces anxiety. And so it's a good practice for us, especially in a culture that runs really high on stress. And then we light our candles together. And we do that for corporate prayer and remembrance. And we started this practice during the pandemic to, like, to help us process the sickness and the death that was just kind of permeating the collective consciousness, and we did it to help us acknowledge the Black Lives Matter protests that were taking place in the wake of so many shootings that were happening. And I'm really glad that we wove those in because I think, especially with like the pandemic has been so ongoing. And I think we're finally at this point of realizing like, there is no going back to, to normal, like there is no, it will never quite be the same. And for me, it becomes hard to grieve something that never ends, right? And so for me, having a small recognition each week of the effects that it has on our lives, even if it's in small ways, I think that's helpful for us collectively as we're grieving um, ongoing and doing something tangible like lighting a candle can connect that grief. It makes it a little more real. It brings it into our bodies. It's something that we can like put in front of us and be like, yeah, that's, this is happening. And that third candle where we ritualize our remembering that white supremacy is a deep and abiding sin in our nation. um, We started that. And when we did, one of our concerns as a staff was that naming so many BIPOC people who have died violent deaths and doing that repetitively might be re-traumatizing, especially for our BIPOC congregants. Um, The feedback that we received at that time was that it was hard, but probably good for the mostly white congregation that we have to face the violence and the reality of white supremacy and to kind of own that. I also think it makes space um, for mourning, right? So it's something that we've kept. We're open to reconsidering or thinking through how that's done differently. Um, We went to a rotating list of names, but sometimes we'll like keep one name every week, like right now, Amir Locke, we're keeping for a time just to help us grieve such a recent loss that we know has caused a lot of pain. So we like to make space ritually to recognize that. And then we follow the candles with prayers of the people, which I don't think needs a lot of explanation, but the Bible encourages us to bear one another's burdens. And so we can name people who are on our hearts and we can do that in community. And I think that helps us know that we don't carry our worries alone. You know, sometimes things are even too hard to pray. I know for me, like sometimes things feel too heavy, so I'll put a name into that. And I'm like, the communion of saints can hold that in a time when maybe I can't hold that. Right. Some of the regulars on the list are people that I know and love. I don't know if my mom's I didn't even look if my mom's on here this morning. She oftentimes will attend church, but Mike and Janine. Yeah, she is. Hi, Mom. Mike and Janine are my parents. So when you pray those every week, that's a way that I can pray for my parents in the community and let you share in that. Um, Yeah, for me, I think it's just comforting to know that there's a whole host of people who can hold our concerns with us. After that, we do the Lord's Prayer and communion. And don't worry, I'm not going to go too deep into that, because in my opinion, communion is probably the most important ritual we do. It has so many layers of meaning. I could do a whole sermon series and maybe will on communion. But if I could try and and do a basic summary, you know, the, the, the symbolic communion table is what holds together all believers everywhere for all space and time, both past and present. Right. It's the thing that binds us all together as the body of christ and it symbolizes this vast mind-blowing inclusion of god it's meant to expand our hearts and our understanding that everyone is us right the only table rules you don't get to make table rules about who's allowed to be at the table it also symbolizes the first fruits of the christian hope of a table or of a world where justice and peace and love are meant to permeate it, Symbolizes our resolve to never scapegoat people. I think during communion, we remind ourselves every week, week in and week out. That as Christians, we view Jesus as the final scapegoat. Right? we remember that he was unjustly treated and that God vindicated him by overturning the death sentence that we humans wrongly meted out to Jesus. And God raised Jesus from the dead to declare that death sentence null and void. And that we, in turn, are to treat others justly, to welcome them in the full belonging in the community of Jesus, right? We are all welcome at this table. And some of that comes from a Girardian understanding of the cross, which I owe to our new congregants and we will do a bit in Lent. But that is that is kind of the summary of my understanding of that. There's a book that our, our Tuesday book group read a while ago, a couple years ago, I think now, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is of the citizen Potawatomi nation. And she had a lovely quote that I'm going to share in the chat. She said uh, ceremony focuses attention. So that attention becomes intention. If you stand together and profess a thing before your community, it holds you accountable. I'm going to read that first part. Again, ceremony focuses attention so that attention becomes intention. Right? So with communion, I think we are professing our intention to welcome others and enact justice and that we can shape ourselves in a rhythm of doing this every week. And we close with a song. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that also could be a sermon, but In part, music helps us remember things well. I know there are phrases that I find helpful sometimes if I'm going through a rough patch in my week, or maybe if I'm feeling extra joyful, um, a song that we sing at church might spring to mind and give me words for what I'm feeling or what I'm praying. And so in that way, it's a spiritual tool that can almost help us with like mantras. Oftentimes, I've found that people who come from church backgrounds, um, and maybe this is you, like where you've come from a church background where you felt hurt or manipulated. Um, sometimes they find music hard because in some settings that that unifying, it can be almost hypnotic effects of music that it can ferment, that that's been abused in in many settings. And so maybe it's helpful to know that we're like hyper aware of that at our church and I hope we are never using it in that way. I know I could give stories from my own background in a sermon sometimes where I could flesh out that more. But the way that I think about singing in church is that most humans have an inbuilt desire to connect through music. I think that it's a part of most humans. It's why we go to concerts, right? And we're like experiencing music together or singing. It helps us feel like we're part of a, Larger whole, right? We're connected to other people. We're like experiencing emotions um, that maybe we have another hard time connecting with. Sometimes I think we can even glimpse a sort of transcendent feeling of unity with everything. And when we sing together, our breaths and our heartbeats sink and we start to feel the boundaries that separate us start to break down. And so, I think understood in that way, I think singing can be a helpful spiritual practice because it can help us recognize our common humanity and it can help us get in touch with some of those deepest prayers that we have. And it's a way that we we worship the creator, and I think the word worship is much wider than the word music. Um, but it's one way that we worship and that we thank and praise God and that we share ourselves with the divine. And then we end with a benediction, which is just a traditional blessing that I also view as hospitality, right? That we send each other off into the week with the support and the love of the community of faith, blessing the different ways that we bring God's love and justice in the world and working toward God's good realm. And sometimes we'll have people who benedict us even write the benediction. Like I know this week, Mike often writes his own benedictions, which I really love um, because that's, that's another way that we are all contributing to this ritual that we do together. So I know that that was a little long and maybe a little, um, I don't know, for some people, I hope it was really helpful. We were talking about some aspects of the church service this week and I thought, you know, it might be helpful for people to know like what some things, why they're there or how we think about them. So I hope that it was helpful for you. Um, as we move into a time of meditation, I chose a, a verse that I thought might be helpful for us. It's from First Chronicles 1611. Look to the Lord in their strength. Seek their face always. And I thought what we might do, if you would like, is as we calm ourselves and bring our breathing into a, like a normal rhythm, I'd invite you to maybe say that verse with your rhythmic breathing. So as you breathe in, look to the Lord and their strength. As you breathe out, seek their face always. Look to the Lord and their strength. Seek their face always. And we'll spend a minute or two doing this. I'll let you know when it's done. But as you're doing this breathing exercise with the verse. If there's anything that comes to mind, like if you want to make some openness for the spirit to speak with you, feel free to let your mind go there. Like maybe there's something about the Lord's strength that it's that's kind of resonating or seeking their face. So I invite you to just have open hands and open hearts as we do this. Look to the Lord in their strength, seek their face always. Go ahead. Creator God, we do seek your face always. And we do this intentionally every week. And we thank you that we can have this space to turn our attention toward you and toward your community so that this attention becomes intention. We ask that you would continue to shine your light into our lives, into our communities. We ask that you would shape us and mold us into people who can bring more justice and love and peace into this world. We ask that you would continue to give us wisdom, to help us grow, to give us guidance as we go through our week and through our lives. That you would give us strength and that your spirit would just whisper little words of help and guidance as we're, we're dealing with rough things at work or with families or friends or kids. We thank you for your presence. We thank you that your spirit has been unleashed into the world and is accessible by us. We thank you. We praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.